Hello and welcome to Abuse Isn't What You Think. I'm your host, Jackie Graybill. Linda, so excited to have you on the podcast. Oh my goodness, you have such an incredible story. And I know that our listeners are just going to be really inspired by you. I'm excited to hear your story from the beginning. So tell us a little bit about your background. I'm excited to be here. Just having opportunity to share my stories, something that has taken me a while to get used to, because when we first start to share our story, you know, I had a lot of pain that when I would share it, I would cry and cry and cry. And now I've told it so many times that I've healed. And that's one thing I love to tell people is the more we tell our story, the more healing we have the opportunity to do. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to, you know, continue to share my story. The things I'm doing today, I like to think of it as that, you know, have you ever had those times in your life where you wanted to do something, but you looked at the people who were doing it and you were like, oh, that's not for me. That's for those people. I lived so much of my life thinking that, that now today I'm doing those things that I was saying that's for those people. So I've become those people and it's been through this amazing journey and I just love it. So you know, I grew up in a very volatile, abusive, alcoholic household. And when I was five years old, I ran away and I was gone an entire week. Now, I only went to the neighbor's house, but as a five-year-old, like a week is a long time to be gone. And what happened in that week was something that I didn't really realize until much later in life when I was probably about 53, 54 years old. Well, when I was gone, nobody came to get me. And I locked in tight this belief, this true, true belief to me that nobody loved me. They didn't want me around. And that's why they didn't come to get me. And so what ended up happening, though, is after a week, my mom brought me home. And when I came home with this new belief that they didn't love me, didn't want me, I ended up becoming a people pleaser. And I also was riddled with fears. My dad was very abusive. And so I had all these fears that really settled in and those fears and the people pleaser mentality ruled my life. Everything I did was based on, will they like me or not? And I'm too scared to do it. So I'm not going to do it. Like I never did anything I was scared to do. So it really ruled my life for decades, decades until I was 51 years old. And what happened at 51 was I was driving to work one day, my 49th job. After 36 years of working in the corporate world, and I just realized that I had no value. I had no purpose. I had no reason to be on this planet. And it was just filled with this anger. And I was like, oh my God, I don't understand. Like, what's this planet all about? Why am I here? I have no value. I have no purpose. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Why am I here? And when I got to work that day, there was a Facebook post and it was from this woman. I didn't know her and said, I'm a life coach. I took some time off. I'm getting back into it. And I'm looking for five women who want to change their life. And that was me. So I raised my hand and I was like, I'm in. I have no idea what this means, what it's going to do, how it's going to help or not. But I'm in because I want to change my life. And that was the greatest gift I have ever given to myself. Even to this day, I've made some, you know, a lot of shifts and changes. I'm no longer that negative person. I now believe in myself. I know that I do have value and I exercise that value on a regular basis. I do know my purpose now. And it was all through me saying, okay, I'm in. I have no idea what this is all about, but
but I'm in. And I'm so glad I did that because that started the ball rolling. So that's kind of like the genesis of my story. Unpack that. (laughs) Wow. That's incredible, Linda. Wow. And it started with you saying yes to yourself, which is hard to do when we're people pleasers. Like you said, so many of us are people pleasers. And for you to realize that that's when it started, that's incredible. Is that something that you had a knowing of? Or at some point, did you break through and realize this is when that started? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was through retrospective. I had always kind of looked at my past, but I didn't have a tool. So my life coach gave me tools that I didn't have before. And so it was through the use of her tools that helped me to look back and say, what was the cause? Because what I've discovered for myself, at least, is when I know the cause, I can move through it. But without knowing that cause, I would just keep on like, why, 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 right? Why me? Why me? You know, I was one of those people. And it was through looking back and saying, there has to be something about that running away There has to be something there. Because first of all, thinking about a five-year-old running away, being gone a whole week, I wanted to be gone forever. I never, ever wanted to go back. But what makes a five-year-old run away? What I love about this realization is this really helps us to shine a light on the fact that at five years old, we have ideas and we have thoughts. And so we can't discount those little kids. Because they do have thoughts that really can get locked in tight. Their belief system has already started. I've heard, and I haven't done any studies on this, but the first seven years of our lives are the most important and most impressionable years. And that's where a lot of our belief system is created. But the beauty of this whole thing for my journey is that I realized much later, I was 51 when I hired my life coach, much later that I can change my belief system. Even though that was locked in tight for so long, I was able to change that belief system. So I've gone through so much healing and I now have not only forgiven my dad, but I have gratitude for my dad. I went on a forgiveness gratitude journey the last hundred days of 2021 for my dad. It was like, I got to see something because there are people who loved my dad so much, but I never did. I hated my dad. He was a monster. And so I said, you know, I want to get into that space where I see what they saw in him and I start to be grateful for all that. And so I went on this journey and oh my gosh, it really, it healed my pain that I had against my dad. He's been dead for years, but I was still able to heal it even though he was gone. That's the long answer. (laughs) No, that's an amazing answer. And healing the charge that you have when you thought of him with that whole forgiveness process, what did that look like? What did you do to help forgive him? Because I know there's so many people who have been in abusive relationships and there's rarely ever any time they're going to come back and ask for forgiveness. They're probably out of your life. If you're lucky, you're not (laughs) consistently being abused by them. How do you go about creating that healing in yourself that can just set you free? Yeah. And that's something you said there really stuck out to me is, you know, hopefully you're not still consistently being abused by them. The abuse goes on and on and on. It's like my dad had been gone for 11 years, passed away. My first husband, I was with him for two years. That was the most damaging, probably that was the 
straw that broke the camel's back because he solidified all that my dad had done the previous years. So in a matter of two years, my ex-husband did so much damage that I believed him. So my ex-husband on a daily basis, he was always just yelling at me and stuff and calling me names. But every single day for two years, he said, you're so stupid. You're so ignorant. People are only nice to you because they feel sorry for you. So as a people pleaser, that really locked that in tight. Thank you so much, right? And so I, I walked around believing that. So even though I was no longer with the abuser, the abuse was still in my head. And now I became the abuser of myself. So I started self-deprecating and I started becoming that person like, I am so stupid. I believe these things. So I carried them around for decades. And my life coach is the one, again, who, who helped me to unlock that. But with my dad, that 100 days of, I called it 100 days of forgiveness and gratitude. And it just happened to be the day I decided to do it. I looked at the calendar. I was like, there's 100 days left in the year. This is perfect. It just happened to be 100 days before. So what I would do is every day, I would come up with a story from my past with my dad. And sometimes it'd be the same story. And that was okay. It just, it was a matter of me doing this exercise. So the exercise was to come up with the story and maybe the story was like, I remember the time that we were driving to Texas and we're in California to Texas. So it's a three-day travel. We were in a paneled station wagon, five kids, two dogs, my parents, you know, we're like the perfect family, right? From the outside. And as we're driving there, one of us kids said something about McDonald's and my dad was like, okay, we'll stop at McDonald's. And then he wanted to stop somewhere else. And the kid said, but I want McDonald's. And he said, okay, every time we see McDonald's, we're going to stop at that McDonald's and you're going to have to eat. And he was just so mad. And so the whole way to Texas, every time we saw McDonald's, we pulled over, we had to eat. And it was just that anger that he had. And I, I just hated him for that. You know, that was just like one simple story. And so I said, okay, I'm going to tell this story to myself, tell this story. And then I'm going to look for the forgiveness in that and say, okay, my dad was in a lot of pain. He grew up in an abusive environment. It doesn't say like he was right, but it's just for me to say, okay, this is a way for me to view it differently. And then have gratitude because my dad taught me don't eat a McDonald's every single time. <laughs> like that could be the simple gratitude that day, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So it, it was interesting because I told the story the way I saw it. And then I gave forgiveness to my dad for the situation. And then I turned it around and like, what could I be grateful for of that moment? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was very small and sometimes it was big. But here's the thing is by the end of the year, that hundred days, I no longer see my dad as a monster. I now can have gratitude for my dad for giving me the life he did give me. I learned so much from him now that I have an open mind, open heart, and open soul about him. Wow, that's amazing. Was there a point in that 100 days that you thought, I just want to stop this. Why am I doing this? Every day. <laughs> Every, day. <laughs> Every day. But you know, I realized it was about me healing. It was about me. Forgiveness isn't about the other person. Forgiveness is about ourselves. And so really it was about me forgiving myself for holding on to that me forgiving myself for, you know, holding on to that anger and that hate and the disdain and for seeing him as a monster and not seeing him as a human being, for not getting the full picture of who he was. My dad was loved by so many people. And when I was 16, he ended up going to AA. He was arrested three times. And back in those days, 
When you're arrested three times, the third time you go to jail and then you're remanded to AA for a year. Like he had to go to AA. And so AA was really a turning point for him. It wasn't a turning point for me. I was 16. And when he came to ask for forgiveness, because that's one of the steps in the 12-step program they do for AA is to go and make reparations to those that you harmed. And when he came to me, I remember it. I'm 16. He came to me for the reparations and I did not forgive him. And I remember for so many years, I was like, he's such a hypocrite. I never forgave him. I didn't realize it wasn't about me forgiving him. It was about him coming and asking for forgiveness. That was the whole step, right? And so I used to think he was this hypocrite, but he ended up becoming a sponsor and sponsored hundreds of people. When my dad passed away, oh, I'll share this story. When my dad passed away, I was standing next to my mom in the hospital. All of us kids were there, all five of us. A couple of my nieces, nephews, you know, grandkids were there in the hospital room. My dad had had a pacemaker put in about a year before because he had many heart attacks. And the night before, Thursday night, he walks into the hospital because he's not feeling too good. And then he ended up having 86 heart attacks in one day. That pacemaker kicked in 86 times. So when we got to the hospital, my husband and I, my mom finally called the family and said, dad's not going to make it come to the hospital. So when we got to the hospital, I was like, he had how many heart attacks? And they said, 86. I said, mom, you have to tell them to just turn the pacemaker off. He can't do this anymore. Even though I hated him, I still hated him at this point. And so she was like, I can't do it. My mom was so abused, so battered. My dad was a gaslighter. He was a narcissist. And he made her believe that she couldn't make a decision. She couldn't make this decision because no matter what decision she made, it was going to be wrong. That's how she had lived her life for so many years. So I went ahead and told the doctor to turn off the pacemaker and let's let him go. And I was standing right next to my mom. And the first words out of her mouth are, here's a trigger warning. I guess maybe this whole story is a trigger warning. <laughs> but the first words out of her mouth were, thank God the bastard is dead. 55 years of marriage. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, I knew my mom had problems with my dad, but I didn't know she felt like that because she never mentioned it, you know? And so I looked at that and I was, I just don't want to live my life this way, like my mom, and, you know, realized that I needed to make changes for my own life too. Now it didn't start then, but it was just like one of those opening of my eyes. So my dad, after he passed away, my mom got hundreds and hundreds of sympathy notes, letters. And they were, you know, like Roy changed my life. Roy was such an incredible man. And as I was reading through every single one of these, I was like, you don't know my dad. You don't know him. And it wasn't until later that I realized that maybe I didn't know him. Maybe they knew the real him and I didn't. I never gave him a chance. It was time for me to give him a chance. And that's what I did. So it changed the, my view of my dad. Wow. And it's so interesting how those people could see your dad one way and yet your mother even after he got clean even after he was helping these people outside of his family she was still abused she still had that reaction of thank god the bastard's dead instead of oh i had these good years with him after he changed 
which is so interesting because they just have this facade to other people, yet the people closest to them are the people who get the abuse, which I think is a really important point because you never know. Somebody might seem incredible on the outside, yet in their relationships, it's totally different. Completely. I remember, you know, there are some people that came into my parents' lives and my mom would say, oh, I love you to them. She never said, I love you to me. And I think she was scared. You know, I think that there was just so much fear in my mom and she just didn't know how to express her feelings to the family. And so her abuse from my dad carried on to us in different ways. It's so true. I remember a friend of mine, I was talking to her, her dad had become sober also. And she said, the only difference of my dad today is that he's a sober asshole. He was a drunk asshole. Now he's a sober asshole. And so my dad was the same person. You know, he was still abusive. He was abusive to my mom. The very last thing he said to her before he passed away was something that was like, you know, everybody take care of your mom because she can't take care of herself. And that was the last thing he said. It's interesting because having that forgiveness and that gratitude was a challenge. So your question every day, I was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I realized it wasn't for him. It was for me. It was for me to grow and to start to see other people with more compassion you know, those who've gone through those challenges. And so it's really about opening my mind. It had nothing to do with my dad at all. And did you find that the abuser in your mind was dampened even more when you went through that forgiveness process? Yeah, definitely. I can now think about my dad without anger, (laughs) without hate. I can think about him and remember some of those situations, you know, like when we would go fishing. Oh my God, I have pictures of us fishing. My dad loved to fish. And you can just see how miserable I am. My face, I just look absolutely miserable. But then I took those situations and I turned them around again and I just told a new story. And the new story was that my dad loved us so much that he wanted to spend time with us. We can change our story in a moment. We have the opportunity, the ability to do that. So changing my story, while I do tell the real story, I have also changed the story in my head to make it one that serves me better because that old story didn't serve me at all. Yes. And it's how our stories serve us in any given moment that is the huge thing. Like you might be in an abusive relationship telling yourself, oh, they'll change. Oh, this is the reason. Oh, it's just the alcohol or the drugs. If they get sober, they'll be better. Whatever. That's a story that doesn't serve you. You're trying to look at the positive, but that's keeping you stuck. But when you get out of it, going through that forgiveness process shows you, like you said, the gifts that you did get from that relationship, the lessons that you did learn. Because no matter what the relationship is, it does hold gifts for us. But if we can, we want to not be triggered and not be beat up by them in the relationship if it's possible. Oh, you know, I love how you said that because it reminded me of later on 2015. First of all, in 2015, I decided to do something a little bit crazy. And that was to break through one fear every single day for a year because I realized fear was just stopping me from living my life. It was after working with my life coach that I had that epiphany that I got so many fears. I just got to break through a fear every day. So during that year, I ended up meeting someone who would become my mentor. And 
he's nothing like my dad at all. But there was something, you know, how sometimes you meet somebody that gives you this feeling of somebody else. My mentor, he became my mentor. And he was this person that when he would talk to me or when he would call me, I would say, oh, I'm not going to answer that. I was scared. And I realized that it was because there was something about him that gave me a trigger of my dad. He was nothing like my dad, but there was still a trigger there. There was something there. As I looked at it, I think what it was is that I always wanted my dad's approval and I wanted Greg's approval, which had nothing to do, like there's not a single thing about them that's the same. And I, I put him, Greg, into the same bucket as my dad. And so what was cool about this realization is now that I have this realization, I can work on it. Again, when I look retrospectively and I see what's the cause, the root cause of something, I can now work on it and grow through it. And so what I started doing is when he would call me, because sometimes he would just randomly call, you know, he would call it. I would look and I'd say, oh, that's great calling me. I can't wait to talk to him. And so I would just change my whole demeanor instead of, oh, it's him. I'm not going to answer it. I'll call him later. That was my fear speaking. I would just completely change my whole thoughts about it. And because he never once said anything bad to me, everything he said has said to me up until today, and he will continue to say is all positive and is forward moving for me. And, but it was just this, this thought of like wanting to, I guess, maybe impress him or wanting to have that approval from him. And so now I have a completely different, I don't go there anymore. That fear does not show up anymore, but it's because I chose to change the way I react to seeing his name. Wow. So question for you, how can you tell if something is a fear like that that you need to get over or if it's your intuition telling you, hey, this person is like my dad, this is an abusive person and you might not even know, but your gut knows. How do you tell the difference between those two? Great question. I love that. You, After breaking through a fear every day for an entire year, I really did a lot of you know, examining through that year of fears and I have a book called The Year of Fears, right? It's called, this is my life, The Year of Fears. And had this huge realization about what the differences of fear and guts, having that, because we do need to listen to our gut. You know, very intuitive. Something I realized later in life that I am intuitive. And so I do need to listen to that. Sometimes my gut steers me the wrong way because it's not my gut. It's my fear speaking. And so how do you know the difference? Well, for me, fear shows up for the most part in nervous energy, like my hands are shaking or maybe my throat is feeling a little locked up or I'm having palpitations in my heart. You know, it's like you're sweating and, and there's different ways that those show up. For me, the intuition more really literally does show up in the gut. It's a different knowing. It's a different feeling. For me, the intuition isn't as much of a nervous energy as it is an energy. It's like something speaking to me maybe I need to listen. But fear really is nothing more than like a nervous type of energy. We say, I'm scared, I'm nervous, I'm anxious. And so what I started doing with just with those alone is I replaced all of those words. Any word that feels like fear, I replaced it all with excited or exciting. And what that did for me is it, because exciting is a positive word. It's a positive word. It has a positive connotation. It's, you know, scared, anxious. These types of words have a negative connotation. So just by changing the word made it so that I would do things like 
go to a networking event. This is how I used to be. I would drive to a networking event. I would talk to myself and try to psych myself up. Then when I would get there, I would park my car. Then I would get on Facebook on my phone before I went in because I wanted to make sure I was ready when I went in there. And the next thing I knew, the event was over and I never went inside and I just drove back. <laughs> I don't even I don't know how many times I did that. But it was my fear of meeting new people, this fear that I had. Uh, that was not gut. <laughs> that was clearly fear, you know. And so the difference for me really is paying attention to what is the energy that is there. Is it a nervous, anxious type of energy or is it something that's just like, I've got a feeling, right? A gut feeling. And that's really where the saying comes from. I've got a gut feeling. And breaking through those fears, man, that totally changed my life completely. <laughs> that is amazing. And I love what you said about naming the fear something different because physiologically fear and excitement are pretty much the same thing. Yeah. I was recently reading Marie Forleo's book, Everything is Figureoutable, and she was talking mm -hmm. about that. And she was talking about giving the fear a silly name, like Shushi or Pookie or... <laughs> so if you'd been in that car, you'd be like, I'm feeling so Shushi, let's go do this. And there's something about making it a silly name that has some power that I'm excited to try out. I haven't done it yet, but... Well, giving it just the word excited or exciting too, it does the same thing. Like I could say to anybody, I'm excited and they would get it. Whereas if I say I'm sushi, they might, or sushi, they might not understand that. But just for me, I like giving it a real word because I'm kind of that way where, you know, I like to like reality kind of person. I'll share with you this epiphany that I had. So about six months into breaking through a fear every day, so it's like 180 something fears. I was brushing my teeth one morning and I was going over that one acronym and it's false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. Like, wait a minute. There's nothing false about my fears and they do not appear real. They are as real as real can be. That is a bunch of BS. You know, that is a stupid acronym. That's what I said to myself. And I was like, wait a minute. When my faith is strong, my fear is weakened. And faith erases anxious reactions because fear is nothing more than anxiety, right? It's an anxious reaction to something. And so faith erases anxious reactions. I came up with my own acronym and I love that one because it reminds me that when my fear is strong, I need to tap into my faith. And this is my faith in myself, my faith in others, my surroundings, and those people who support me and love me and want to support me, you know, to lift me up as well as my faith in God. So when I tap into all three of those things, it makes it really simple to break through a fear. I love that. That is such a great acronym. Thank you. And it sounds like even before your year of getting rid of your fears, a fear day, which is just incredible. That's so inspiring. <laughs> I'm excited to try this because it just okay, sounds cool. so powerful. Uh, so you're, you're an inspiration to me. I know you're an inspiration to everybody who's going to listen to this. Thank In you. what ways did you put that into practice before you went all in on this year? Because I know you said you escaped from an abusive marriage. It was a two-year marriage. We have this in common. I escaped after 18 months, but it was much longer than that until my divorce was final. How did you utilize that to get out of that relationship? 
Because I know there's so many fears and we're thinking about getting out of that relationship. Can I survive? They told me I'm stupid. Like he told you every single day. How did you get over that to harness those fears and get past them to escape? Yeah, there's two different scenarios here. So the first one is that marriage. I was young. I was 19 when I got married. I was 21 when I walked out on him. And I had a four-week-old and a 14-month-old when I walked out. So I literally walked out also because I didn't have a car. We had one car, and I was just like, he was in the car. He left, and so that's when I walked out. So I put my son on my hip and my daughter in her baby carry case, and I had a purse over one shoulder and a diaper bag over the other, and I walked out. And, you know, thinking about that, that was a strong, brave person, right? I heard this all the time. Wow, you have so strong that you did that. You're so brave. And I heard these things. The reality that was going on inside of me, my mind, was that I was scared to stay. So my fear of leaving was less than my fear of staying. So I had a fear either way. And I got to choose the lesser of two fears, really, is what I did. And I had looked at my mom's life. Again, my mom was in this abusive relationship. And I was like, I'm in my mom's life right now. And I didn't want to live that life. So I did something I did at five years old. I ran away. And really that five-year-old who ran away started a pattern. And I realized later again that I wasn't ever running away. I was actually running to something better. I had 49 jobs. Did I run away from all those jobs? I never got fired from a single job. So I ran away from 49 jobs or was I running to something better? Like always running to something better. And so when I look at it, really looking again, that was me changing my language because I always said I ran away, ran away, ran away. I ran away from all those jobs. I ran away from my husband. And so I looked at that situation and I said, the fear I have, I have fear either way. So which fear is the less of the two? And really the fear of staying with him was way stronger than the fear of leaving him and trying to figure it out myself. I was a single mom for a couple of years. You had those two little babies. Fortunately, when my daughter was three and my son was four, I ended up meeting a man who would become my husband for 33 years we've been together. And even though I still didn't believe in myself through all this time, because my ex-husband's words kept coming up, my, my husband now, I mean, he's always telling me how amazing I am, how smart I am, how brilliant I am. And I just couldn't believe him because that other stuff was locked in tight. And so now that, you know, working with my life coach really helped me to start to believe what my husband believed about me, you know, for all these years. And so when it got to the point of breaking through these fears every day, you know, I had, again, I had let fear control me. So sometimes the fear was the fear of staying somewhere and uh, just a bunch of different fears. And after I worked with my life coach and she helped me to see all these different things about myself and I started on this journey of changing and growing and becoming a completely different person, living a completely different life, losing friends who I'd known for decades that I was like, you know, that's okay because they're still in the pain and I'm not in that pain anymore. I don't want to be in that pain anymore. And so a lot of things shifted in my life. So when I started breaking through those fears every day, it was a decision, January 1st, 2015, I woke up that morning and I said, wow, you know, working with my life coach was amazing and I want to keep growing. 
I've got so many fears. I have so many fears. I'm going to break through a fear every day this year. This is exactly what it looked like. So I decided, okay, every day for the next year, I'm going to wake up. And the first thing I'm going to do before I even get out of bed is I'm going to ask myself a question. What scares me? Then I'm going to lay in bed and I'm going to wait until the first fear pops in my head. Whatever that first fear is, I'm committed to breaking through it that day. I couldn't stack them up because then I'd have two fears the next day, then three, right? So I had to break through that fear that day. I had so many epiphanies this year. You imagine you're breaking through a fear every day. You know, hopefully you'll look back and try to figure things out. It's like, why, 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 why? So you can change. But what I had this realization of was that the majority of my fears were based on the fear of judgment. That fear is the biggest fear. That fear of judgment is why I was a people pleaser. I was so scared of people judging me. I used to say, I'm a chameleon. I can blend into any situation. And I took pride in being a chameleon. The reality was that I was a people pleaser and I was too scared of what people would think of me if I said something that went against their beliefs. <laughs> That's what the reality was. And so I mean, kind of chuckle about it now because I've gone through it, you know, and that fear of judgment stopped me from so many things. But what was cool is now, oh, I know what my major fear is. Now I can work on it. So now I don't have that fear of judgment anymore. It doesn't even show up anymore. Wow. It's been incredible. I have done some really cool things because I have shifted away from that fear of judgment. Wow. Which was rooted in that five-year-old's mindset of people yep. all the way back. Decades. Wow. Decades of crap, right? And, you know, when we have so much crap inside of our mind, you know, we have to chip away about a little bit at a time just a little bit. And we won't see the changes, the growth as much. I had people telling me, you're so different this week than you were last week. That's how fast my growth was, but I didn't feel it because I was living it. I look at now and, you know, I still have negative thoughts, but they don't last nearly as long as they did before. I don't ever beat myself up anymore. Mm. I just don't, I'm not my own worst enemy anymore. I'm now my own best cheerleader. Like I've turned into my own best cheerleader. And I'll share what's cool about that is by being your own best cheerleader, what this does is it makes it so I no longer have to tap into outside people for approval. I get approval from myself now. It's been amazing. That's powerful. So you're really taking through this process of getting rid of a fear a day or a facing a fear a day. Right. We're shrinking your critic, your inner critic that started with your dad, with your first abusive marriage, and you're increasing your inner cheerleader through mm -hmm. facing your fears. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I like to talk about, too, is that proverbial comfort zone. My mom was with my dad for 55 years. It was her comfort zone. It was abuse but it was her comfort zone. She didn't feel comfortable out of that. She tried to run away several times, but she always went back, always went back. And that was her comfort zone. So I like to talk about, you know, if you imagine of every day you're breaking through a different fear and some of the fears were repeated, you know, because 365 fears is a lot, but a lot of them were the same fear that kept showing up over and over and over again that I had to keep 
working on, keep chipping away at. So you have this comfort zone and it's whatever size it is. It's small, it's big, whatever. But every time I would break through one fear, it would enlarge the size of my comfort zone just a little bit, just a little bit. And then every day, more and more. And just like a balloon, you blow it up the first time, it's a little bit hard, right? And then the next time you blow it, the same balloon up again, it's a little bit easier and it gets a little bigger. That's how I like to relate the comfort zone, the size of it. So I have enlarged the sides of my comfort zone, like on a daily basis, 365 days. So what ended up happening is I like to say is I have blown the lid off of my comfort zone and now it's just an open zone. It's completely open because I no longer am letting fear stop me. That comfort zone is created. A lot of times it's from the fears that we have, and that's what puts the cap on the comfort zone. So let's take that cap off and just break through as many fears as possible change our lives. I love that picture, almost like real estate, like blowing up that balloon. So your mother, she had this teeny tiny comfort zone. And like you said, she tried to leave and that was off her comfort zone, real estate. It was just too much because she hadn't enlarged her comfort zone, real estate enough where she felt okay being outside of the abusive relationship. So what you're saying is as we are facing our fears, our real estate with our comfort zone gets bigger and bigger. So things that previously would have scared us are now in our comfort zone. Right. That's what I love about it is because we're expanding that size of that comfort zone. My word of the year last year was exponential, you know, because I just wanted everything to, I want to think exponentially and just think about growth and how I can continue to grow. And like, I still have fears. They still show up. Like I'm not fearless. I might be fearless, but I'm not fearless and I have less fear, but they show up. And what's cool now is now I can say, ah, that's just fear. I'm going to do this because I'm scared. Because I realized that every time I broke through one of those fears that I felt good. I felt proud of myself. I felt stronger. I felt more fearless, right? And so because I was getting these great results and some of the results of, I'll share one of the stories was really cool. If you know who Jack Canfield is, you know, he's the co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul books. They've sold over 500 million copies. And I was attending this event where I was going to be a red carpet interviewer at the Academy Awards after party, which was one of the things that happened during this year of fears. But when I showed up, I showed up around one o'clock and everybody was at lunch. There were about 500 people at this event, except Jack Canfield and these three people. And he was talking to them and I looked in and I was, oh, there's Jack Canfield. I'm going to get a picture with him. I was so excited. I was going to get a picture with Jack Canfield. And they were talking about 10 minutes. Then when they were done, those three people turned around and walked away. And Jack just happened to turn around, walk toward me because I was by the exit. And he said out loud, I'm hungry. I'm going to go get some lunch. Why did he say that out loud? I have no idea. But I heard him and I grabbed his arm and I said, okay, Jack, I'm going to take you to lunch. Where are we going? So we went to lunch. I went to Jack. I spent a couple hours with him at lunch. It was just a lot of fun. But there were a lot of things I learned during that lunch. One of them is as we were walking to lunch, just about every person knew him because he had just spoken at this event and stuff. So they knew him and they're like, Jack, I want a picture with you. Jack, will you sign my book? Jack, I have a product. Will you look at it? I want you to critique it for me. Will you write the forward to my, everybody wanted something from him. So when we finally sat down for lunch, the first thing I said to him 
and this is through my observation of seeing what everybody else was doing, I sat down and I said, I just want you to know that I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm here just to be in your presence. That's it. And he's like, cool, thank you. And so we had a really nice lunch, two hours. He really got to know me and I got to know him. And we realized that we had a lot of similarities in our lives. So later that night, I'm on the red carpet and I'm interviewing stars. I mean, it was really cool. And Jack Canfield comes down and he yells out, hey, there's Linda, my lunch buddy, like that. And then I interviewed him. And at the end of the interview, I said, hey, Jack, tell everybody what you love about me. I don't know why I said that, but I did. And so Jack Canfield gave me an amazing testimonial right there on the red carpet. So I use that, you know, but if I hadn't gone through those fears, I wouldn't have done any of that. I would have been too, um, I'll go ahead and see if I can get a picture with him later. You know, poor me, woe is me. But I didn't. I just took advantage of that. I saw an opportunity and I seized the opportunity. I like to say, see the opportunity, then seize the opportunity. That's just like one very small simple story that happened during that year of breaking through those fears and how it has completely transformed who I am and my beliefs in myself. I interviewed the president of Mexico in his presidential suite. That would not have happened had I not broken through those fears every day. Wow. So take us to the moment right before you decide to do something that you're like, this could be really cool, but ah, fear. What do you do in that moment. That's <laughs> so funny. That just, for some reason, a Wesley Snipes came to mind. You American actor, Wesley Snipes. I was, again, interviewing stars on the red carpet, a different opportunity. And Wesley Snipes, he was like the headliner, you know, that we knew we were going to have opportunity to interview. And I had my videographer there and I looked at him and I said, no matter what, we are interviewing Wesley Snipes. Like we are interviewing him. And so I, I interviewed some people here and there. And then I saw, okay, here comes Wesley Snipes. I'm not interviewing anybody else. I just like let them pass by. And there he was being interviewed about three people down from me. And I had my eyes set on him. Like I knew that okay, he's going to come to me. Awesome, we're here. And literally you were lined about, you know, maybe, I don't know, 15 inches back to back with people the whole way because everybody's wanting to interview. And so there he was, he walks by me, passes me up and goes about three people after me. And I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I am interviewing you. <laughs> so he's being interviewed by this next person. And I'm looking at every single body language. I'm listening to every single word. Like, I have, the point here is like, I am hyper tuned in to what I want. I want to interview. Not only I want to, I am going to interview Wesley Snipes. And so I'm really tuning into every single word they're saying, looking at the body language. Is he going to get ready to shift and move down another six people or what have you? And the second, like the split second they were done, I touched his elbow and I just pulled him over and I said, Mr. Snipes, it's my turn. He goes, okay. So he came on over and I was so hyper-focused on what I wanted. That's something that's different within me because in the past, I would be hyper-focused on what I wanted, but let it pass me by because how embarrassing would that be to grab his arm and pull him over? How embarrassing would that be for me to grab, you know, I like grabbing people's arms, you know, grab Jack Canfield's arm and say, I'm taking you to lunch. How embarrassing would that be if I really let myself think too much about it? So instead, what I do now is I get hyper-focused on the result I want, and then I just go for it. 
And I don't care. And I don't get embarrassed anymore. And that's one of the big differences. I might do things that are silly and goofy and people look at me and I might have embarrassed them, but I don't embarrass myself anymore. I was in the grocery store with my husband a couple of weeks ago and they're playing this 80s music and I'm a totally an 80s girl. And I was just singing and I was dancing and I was like moving the cart around and people were laughing with me and at me, but I was having a blast and that was what mattered for me. My husband was having a great time with me. And in the past, I wouldn't have done that because I would have been too embarrassed. So that's where it is for me. It's about that, you know, getting that focus, hyper focus on what result I want and go for it. So in that moment, your inner cheerleader is like, yeah, girl, you got this. Whereas before you would have heard, that's so stupid. They're going to see you as a fool. What if you fall on your face in front of Wesley Snipes or Jack Canfield? Is that a little bit of what was going on? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's just a shift that's happened in my mind of you know, living my life the way I want to live it instead of living in fear, just no longer letting fear stop me, you know? Oh, that is incredibly, incredibly inspiring. Wow. Uh, and I ain't over yet. I'm only 59. I got long days to go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I wouldn't have thought a day over 50. <laughs> oh, thank you. If that. <laughs> thank you. Um, so tell us some other ways that you have changed since you have let go of the abuse. You've totally been changing what you're working on. What are some of the other things that have changed in your life? Oh, gosh, so many different things. I would say the, the one that has been the most interesting because it took so long is the fear of money. Tremendous fear. You know, I have a business. And I left my last job. I had 49 jobs, right? I was working for a judge in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which in California is the highest court. And I was working for the number two judge. Like I made it. I did this work and I got here and I was so excited to have that job, but I was so bored of it. And when I finally left that job and became an entrepreneur, I'm going to do something. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know who I'm going to help. I don't know how I'm going to make any money but I'm no longer going to work for somebody. That was like a decision I made. And I literally jumped off the ledge and we hear about this all the time. And I didn't have a net at all. I didn't have a pension, 49 jobs. You don't have a pension. I didn't have a 401k. I, it's not like I had a, a nest egg, but I knew what I was no longer going to do. Again, was I running away or was I running to something better? I was running to something better because I wanted to live my life. I was tired of living all those jobs that were just, they just didn't serve me. So I started this journey and one of the things I really didn't realize at the time is that I had huge money issues, huge. I would have like, you know, like a lot of times in coaching types of things, they'll say, okay, create a package of what you're going to sell. And I would come up with, you know, ABC, these are the things I'm going to sell and it's going to be $500. And I was all excited because I'm working with somebody, they're telling me how to do all this and I'm so excited. I'm pumped up and I'm ready to go talk about my programs and sell my programs. And then when people would say, how much does it cost? I would say, uh, $50. <laughs> I would never ask for the full amount because I didn't, even though that was a number that somebody helped me come up with, I wasn't emotionally or ready mentally to ask for that. I didn't believe I deserved it. I didn't believe I could deliver on it. So I had a lot of work to do on that. And that right there took me six and a half years, six and a half years of working, working, working on it to the point that now when I mention pricing, 
I have no emotional connection. There was an emotional connection. So for me, I had to tap in what was the driving force, right? What's the root cause? Well, my dad, you know, again, a lot of it stems from my dad. Money doesn't grow on trees, pinch pennies. When you find a penny, pick it up because it might be the only penny you find. All these different sayings about money. And most importantly, here was the one that I had this huge realization is that when my dad would be angry about something, he would, that he used to beat my mom. He never beat me. I don't know about the other kids, but he never beat me. But it was the emotional abuse that I experienced. After an episode, we would all pack up in the car and go eat somewhere. Or my dad would take us shopping. Or he would take us to a movie. So I equated money with love. As a people pleaser, if I would tell you something costs $500 and you'll be like, oh, I can't afford that, I would think that that meant you didn't love me. That was what was going on in my head. So once I had that realization again, now I can work on it. It still took years because that realization came about a year into my entrepreneurial journey. So it still took an additional like five and a half years for me to finally break through that one. But it was that fear of not being loved. You know, I needed that so badly. And now I realize that it's not because they don't love me. It's just because it's not the right time for them. It has nothing to do with me at all. That was my biggest one. And oh, I'm so grateful that I worked and worked and worked. And I just continued working on it because I knew eventually I would get there. It took a lot longer than I wanted. It took a lot longer than I thought, but I'm here. Oh, that's a huge one. That's one I am personally working on right now. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> it's hard, but it's rewarding. And I feel like so many of us who have been in abusive relationships have that huge money sticking point, even beyond the typical sayings that your dad would say that a lot of our parents have said to us, me, one of six, I know you were one of five, you said money doesn't grow on trees. Those things become so ingrained and 97% of people who have experienced abuse in all its forms have experienced financial abuse. So there's that added layer on top of it. So what did you do during your time of working through those blocks? There was the drilling down and diving into where it came from, but how did you overcome those money blocks? Because that's a huge thing for so many of us. It really is. And I've worked with lots of coaches and different, like I have had money coaches. I've had hypnotists that work with me on different, you know, money issues. I've worked with so many different types of modalities and I needed outside help. So that's the first thing is I couldn't do it myself as I would recognize that, okay, there's, I'm having another block. I got to go find who out there can help me through this. And so finding those people, I mean, that right there was a challenge in itself because, you know, a lot of people don't, they're not able to help us. They're just tools. People are tools. We're the ones who have to help ourselves so they can give us the guidance and they can help us to walk through different scenarios, but we're the ones who have to do the actual work. So finding those people who I resonated with enough that I would trust them enough to help me through that one particular block, that was a big deal for me. But the money block was such an interesting one because I would hear coaches say, up your price, up your price, up your price. 
And I would up my price, but I still wouldn't ask for it because I still didn't believe in myself. So one of the things I realized is that I myself, at least I can only speak about me, is that I had to increment my way up. They would say, that's worth $5,000. And I'd be like, okay, $5,000 because they told me. But then when it came to the reality of me saying $5,000, it wouldn't come out of my mouth or it would come out of my mouth like, um, um, 5,000, you know, five, I, I had no, no confidence over it. I had to first get comfortable saying $50 and then 75 and then a hundred. Like I had to get comfortable with that first before I could actually really get there. And that was what I had to do. Now, not everybody's that way, but that was what I had to do. Again, I had to chip away. I had to chip away at it. And so now I don't have those money blocks. I do have a program that's $20,000 and I have no problem saying that, but I worked hard to get there. For me, a lot of this is a matter of what is the root cause? And then I work on that. And then I continue to chip away at it because I need to grow in increments. I don't grow like, boom, I've grown. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I don't have a growth spurt, right? I have incremental growth spurts, but I keep going. And it's that perseverance, I believe. If I didn't have this perseverance, I wouldn't be here today. My husband and I were almost homeless a couple of years ago, right before COVID. And that was because I was not making any money in my business. And we sold our house and we were chipping away, like using all that money from our house. And we were almost homeless. And unfortunately, we're not. But it's just because those money blocks that I had. Wow. So this is something that you've been working on even recently, even since COVID, which, mm -hmm. is, which is huge because that is inspiring to all of us that we don't have to have this, like you said, huge growth spurt. We can just chip away incrementally. And if we don't stop incrementally growing, then we will see the results, which is, it's good to know. And it feels better than, oh, I have to have this big thing right now. And how can I hire somebody to help me when I don't have the money and I have the money blocked to hire? It's almost like a chicken and egg type of thing. But knowing that you can do it incrementally feels a little more comfortable. Yeah, I had this belief that if I throw money at it, it'll get fixed. Because, you know, at the beginning, like we sold our house, we made quite a bit of money on that. And we just put that in the bank and I use that as my business money. And I had this belief that if I bought this program, I bought that program, I hired this coach, I hired that coach, that I would become rich. And that did not happen at all because I still had a lot of internal issues that I had to work on in my mindset, you know, a lot of those issues. And so as I worked my way through those various issues, things started unfolding. And one of those, I mentioned that word issues like 10 times in one sentence, but you know, one of those was that belief that if I buy from them, that I'm going to get the same success that they have. And that did not happen. It might happen for some people, but it didn't happen for me. And it was because I wasn't mentally ready yet to get there. I had to grow. I like to say that now I'm like an eight-year-old because I started at age 51 and I'm 59. So I'm like an eight-year-old, you know, growing and learning all these different things. And there's so many sayings out there that, you know, when we look at them in realistic terms that we can see that they're just sayings and that doesn't mean that's the way it is. One great one that I love is we are a reflection of the five people we hang out with the most. I don't remember who said that, but that saying, if you think about it, is it really true? Well, I surround myself with multimillionaires and billionaires. My mentor 
he is a person who is surrounded by those people. And I hang out with my mentor who hangs out with those people. And I am not a multimillionaire or a billionaire. My mindset's not there yet. So I'm still working on that aspect. Now, here's the thing is some people may say, you are a multimillionaire or a billionaire. The money's just not in your bank account yet. So I've heard phrases like that as well. It's like, okay, I'll grab onto that one. I'll just grab, keep grabbing onto these different <laughs> sayings. But it's interesting because there's so many sayings out there that really, if we break them down, they're not true for everybody. And they're maybe not true right now, but we can learn to move into them. And that's what I'm in the process of doing is it is a process. It is a process of whether it's breaking through fears or having many issues, money blocks or, or whatever it is, you know, give yourself grace and realize that as you continue to work on it, it's something you might need to work on for years and years and years before you officially get there. But don't let your desperation for instant success get in your way. Because what happens is when we let our desperation show up, because I wanted it fast. I wanted it fast. So when I let my desperation show up, then it actually detracts from the growth because desperation, people recognize that. And what happens is when you are showing up desperate, people don't buy from you because you're desperate. They just, they will not buy from you. So you got to show up from that, that heart centered place of really wanting to serve others and not worry. Like if they don't buy from me, then I'm doomed. That's how I used to feel. I had to break through all of that in order to get to this point of where I'm much more confident in what I do is showing up. And, you know, if they buy from me, awesome. If they don't, that's awesome too, because I want them to do what's most beneficial for them. And the last thing I wanted to say on that is that I never sell anything. I never, ever sell anything. People buy from me. And what this has done for me mentally is this has moved me into a place of Instead, because when we sell to people or when we sell at people, I feel like that's more for us. But when they buy from us, we have empowered them with information to make an educated decision. And then when they make a decision to buy from us, then they are empowered. It's completely different. I have had many, many times that I've talked to people about what we're doing. I do book publishing and we do collaboration books where we bring people together. I've had many calls where they're like, you know, I, I'm just not sure if this is, okay, here's the information, make a decision that you're going to do it or not. And two or three months later, they reach out to me and say, okay, I'm in, send me an invoice. See, they were empowered with the information and they decided they were ready. That for me, as a human being, feels so much better than me trying to convince them they need to buy something from me. Yes, because convincing feels icky and, and for somebody who has been in an abusive relationship, it feels like you don't want to be like them. And that's what they were. So you're like, I don't want to be like them. And then you don't end up making anybody because you're afraid to put it out there because you're afraid of being icky like them. Yeah. yeah, Right. It's just like this whole awful cycle that continues. And so for me, just turning the phrasing around to people buy from me. It's completely different. Again, I want to empower people to make decisions. I don't want to disempower them and make them feel like they need something that they don't, maybe don't really need. It came to that conclusion because after buying all those different things, I bought most of them because, you know, it's like, today's the last day. Get in today. Otherwise, your life is doomed. Right? And that's, that's how I felt. Like, my life is over if I don't 
if I don't get this program today, you know, I'm never going to get it again. And so I realized that I had so many times that I bought things that I felt, oh, I regretted. But it wasn't about them. The regret was myself. I beat myself up because why did I do that? I can't believe I fell for that again, right? And all those kinds of things. And like, I don't want to be that person that people feel like regret that they purchased from me. I don't want to be that person. And so I chose not to be that person. And it's completely changed the way I run my business. And I might not be as successful as I could be if I force people into things, but I feel good about what I do every single day, every day. And that is the biggest thing. Because if you can be happy with where you're at and you're successful, having worked on your mindset and gotten to that point, you're so much happier than if you're trying to force people to do things and you don't feel integrated and aligned with your inner values. Yeah. And that's knowing what your values are. As a people pleaser, I didn't know what my values were because I would always, every time I was with somebody, I would just grab onto whatever their thoughts were and ideas and I would just blend in. Again, you know, I was a chameleon, right? And so for me, one of those pieces of the journey was, who is Linda? What do I love? What do I hate? What do I like? You know, what do I want to be around? How do I want to live my life? That was an exercise my life coach took me through is to just like, as you're doing something, if you're really enjoying it, write it down. And I did that for about a week. And I had this huge list of like 30 different things that I loved doing. And then the next goal was every day for five minutes, just five minutes, do one of those things on your list. And so I would every day pick something on the list and I would do five minutes of that thing, whatever it was. And then the next week, 10 minutes every day for a week, do something on your list for 10 minutes that you absolutely love doing. So I could get used to knowing what I loved and doing it and doing it because I wanted to do it, not doing what other people wanted me to do. And so I did this until it got to something like four hours a day, five hours a day doing things that I love. And now I spend the majority of my time doing what I love because I finally know what I love. Oh, that's so powerful. I love that. That's your joy first life where you're developing your pleasure practice, right? Which we love that. Yeah. It feels so weird to be like, okay, I can do things that I actually love to do. Not I have to hustle. I have to work. I have to do all this stuff, but it's changing the mindset and changing what you're building your life around. So you actually enjoy your life. What about that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I really do. And you know, there's still the ho-hum drum things, you know, washing dishes and things like that. But, you know, just make the best of it while I'm doing it. And it's really shifted for my business as well, because when I first became an entrepreneur and I left that job and working for that judge, I jumped into entrepreneurship, not knowing what I was going to do, how I was going to make any money, who I was going to serve. And I started seven business ideas right out of the gate. Well, all of them failed. One of them in particular was an event that I decided to put on called Lemon Zest and Garlic Fest. I ended up losing $70,000 that day. At the end of the day, I looked at it and I said, okay, next time, you know, I didn't quit and give up. I said, next time, this worked, this didn't. Don't do these things that didn't work and do more of these things that did work. But I loved every bit of the process. So even though I lost all that money, 
it was like the process and I loved it. I loved what I was doing. I was having a great time. And that was one of the challenges. I didn't look at it to see how much money was being spent. I was just doing what I wanted to do for the first time in my life. And it didn't matter the money. Yeah, that's a lot of money to lose. But I looked at the money as, okay, in four months, I learned what would have taken me four years to learn in college if I was doing like an event planning type of course. So I just dove in and did $70,000 in four months instead of four years. So look at how much time I saved. And also I probably spent less money doing it this way on the job training than if I went to college. <laughs> right. So I looked at it from that perspective. What did I learn and what do I need to make sure that I implement next time? And so it's really just, again, a matter of shifting the mindset. And what am I learning while I'm in this terrible situation right now is another thing I do now is I say, well, what am I learning right now? And what that does is it pulls me out of the agony into a logical mindset. Okay, this is what I think I'm supposed to be learning. So let me go forward with this knowledge and just keep going. Oh, I love that question. What am I learning right now? With right me? now. And the idea of reframing. And like you said, you loved that event. You loved doing what you were doing. And I think sometimes for a lot of us, it's a foreign idea that we can do something that we love and we can make a life from that, make money from that, support ourselves from something that we love to do because we've conditioned that it has to be something hard. And that's the dichotomy because if it's hard, we probably shouldn't be doing it. We're not in flow, right? Depending on what your beliefs are, you know, if you're in flow, and, and this was interesting too, and there's been a lot of cool things that have happened, and I'm so glad that I've opened my mind and my heart and my soul to learn all these things, is that when I'm in flow, it sometimes feels weird because I was used to chaos. I grew up in chaos, and I had this epiphany just a couple months ago. I was creating my own chaos. So as I started to get overwhelmed, as I started to pile on more things, as I started to say yes to people that were things that I really should not say yes to, at least not for right now, as I started doing all that, I was creating chaos. I grew up in chaos. That was my comfort zone. That's what I was familiar with for so many years. So now, I again, I had this idea that, wow, what am I doing? I'm creating my own chaos again. It was just a cycle that I had been on for so many years. And then I said, in that moment, I'm creating my chaos again. Okay, again, I have realization. I have awareness. Now I can make a shift. And I immediately reached out to three people that I had said yes to on something that I should not have said yes to. And I just reached out and I said, you know what? This is not the right time for me. The fear of people-pleasing, the fear of rejection didn't show up. I just told them, that this is not the right time for me and I can't do this. If it comes up again, please invite me because then I can maybe participate at that time. But I immediately, with three different people, I eliminated that chaos. So that flow, that flow state was something that I tapped into years ago. All that abuse from my dad and then my ex-husband. And then I had boyfriends and, you know, attracting abuse, 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 abuse into my life. And then I met my current husband and he was just perfect, perfect, really in every way for me. And about two years into the relationship, I started saying, 
When is he going to leave me? It's too easy. This is too good. I don't deserve this. And then a couple years later, I started saying, I guess he's not going to leave me. Cool. <laughs> I need to get used to this, that this is, this is my life. A happy relationship, somebody who loves me, trusts me, believes in me, and somebody who is here with me on the journey. And just so grateful for that, that I, again, I didn't create a chaos that would move me out of that situation. But that was the only thing that ever was like that. The chaos that I created was in every part of my life, except with my husband, which is kind of interesting. I'm so glad. <laughs> yes. And that there are amazing guys out there, amazing people out there for us after yeah. we've been in that abusive relationship. But I love that question, asking myself, where in my life am I creating chaos? Because we get used to it. Like you said, that was your normal. That was your set point. And realizing that started to change everything. Yeah. And that's one thing I, again, realized is the realization <laughs> is once we have awareness, once we have awareness, we can make a decision. And the decision is to say the same or to change. Either way, we're making a decision. I have awareness. If I decide to stay the same, I have made that decision. And I'm the only one to accept the responsibility for that decision, which is one of the sunshine principles. We're coming up with the sunshine principles right now. One of them is to accept 100% responsibility for your life. And that was something that really hit me hard when I read that in Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles. And I was like, I'm responsible for all of this? <laughs> you know, that, that was no good. <laughs> but you know, having that awareness is when we have the ability to change. Until we have awareness, it's hard. You know, there's so many different sayings. One of them is, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. The reality is the teacher is always there, especially with Google nowadays. The teacher is always there. The student's just not ready yet. So, you know, how many people in your life do you say, they should do this, or they should do that, or they should stop doing this, like telling what they should do. They're just not ready yet. They may never be ready, but we can't accept responsibility for them not being ready. So when I have clients and I teach them different things, I can only teach them. And if they're not ready to take the steps, they're not going to take the steps. That's no reflection on me as a coach or as a person that's helping them. It's up to them to take the steps. Oh, so good, Linda. This has been amazing. Just so many nuggets and gems. What would you tell somebody who is either in an abusive relationship or has escaped that and is working on rebuilding their life? Oh, yeah, this is such a great question because I just got goosebumps from that question because it reminds me of how would I do it now as opposed to how I did it then? Because then I just was riddled with fear. What I would say today is find those people in your life who do believe in you and who want to see you succeed. I used to work in the jails, one of my 49 jobs, I was a booking clerk in a jail and this guy escaped. And the first thing the police did was go to his house because what happens is people typically will go back to their environment. My point here is that when you leave an abusive environment, you can't go back to the same environment because that's, going to help pull you back in. So it's finding people in your life 
who do believe in you, who do want to see you succeed and surround yourself with those people. Now, you may not become those people yet, but eventually you will become like those people. There's a saying, believe it, behave it, become it. So what we believe is how we behave. How we behave is who we become. But first we have to believe it before we can become it. So it's really this process of believing in ourselves. And sometimes we need to tap into other people's beliefs in us in order to become that person. I like to say, see yourself through the eyes of others for others see the real you. Of course, this is only positive people. So surround yourself with those positive, motivational, inspirational, uplifting people who really truly want to see you succeed. And if you don't have those people in your circle, go find them because they're out there. I found them in my life and they have completely shifted my life. I have become that person. I wanted to become that person. So what did I do? I hung out with those people and it's totally shifted my life. And you can do that. You have the strength within you. You just got to tap in and find it. Do you really want it? Because if you want it bad enough, you will go get it and it will find you. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, Linda. Thank you so much for everything that you shared, for who you are, which is an inspirational kick butt woman <laughs> that just faces her fears down. It's incredible to have you on the podcast. And how can we follow you? What do you have going on? Oh, I've always got something going on. That's for sure. <laughs> In the process of actually honing it all down, through all this journey, one thing that's been amazing is I found my purpose. And you know, what I believe is that when we find our purpose, it's our job and duty to spend the rest of our lives living on purpose instead of living on accident. And so I'm doing that. I sharing my story is one of the things I do. I help other people to share their stories in books. I'm a book publisher. I've been publishing for a couple of years. And I did it kind of for fun at the beginning and realized that I'm really good at this and I love it so much that I decided to make it my business. So I started you know, doing the book publishing. It's a lot of fun. So far, we've published 177 authors and of course, looking to increase those numbers and increase them and increase them. You can find me at actiontakerspublishing.com and Action Takers Publishing everywhere. Like we're on LinkedIn and a YouTube channel. We're everywhere. So you can find us wherever you're looking. But the thing is that you have a story to tell. And when you start telling your story, it does several things. One is it helps you to heal. And the other thing is you can help others heal also through your story. So we're looking forward to connecting with you to help you to share your story with the world. Amazing. Thank you so much, Linda. This has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. You are so welcome.